You are listening to Talking Up, an interview show dedicated to authors, journalists, and writers working on issues of social justice, equity, and the systems that make up the nonprofit sector. Guests are talking about their writing and their research and what drives their work. Listeners will have the opportunity to widen their lens and figure out where we might go from here. Welcome to Talking Up with host Gail Picco, editor-in-chief of The Charity Report. David Love raised his first dollar for nature in 1969. In the past 50 years that he's been an active fundraiser, much of that time with the World Wildlife Federation, he's raised many millions more. In 2013, he was recognized with a Lifetime Achievement Award by the Association of Fundraising Professionals. Now, David's written a book called Green Green, Reflections on 51 Years of Raising Money for Nature. Hi, David. Welcome to Talking Up. Hello, Gail. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Well, it's certainly our pleasure. And congratulations on the launch of Green Green. Reflections on 51 years of raising money for nature. How does it feel to have it finally on the shelf? Well, it, it actually feels really good to have it finally done. Um, uh, it took, it took a while, and actually, Gail, as you know, you were one of the people that got me to do it, frankly. Um, I was thinking about I had all these pieces of paper, and it just turned, it just seemed to me I could pull some of it together, and and it was it was actually turned out to be very enjoyable. I really enjoyed it. For my part, I thought that it would be useful for all of us who would sit around, and, and when we tried to deal with a problem, we would think, okay, what would David Love do? And so now we know that we ha- we have a way of finding out what would David Love do. Well, it's interesting. It's it, and it cha- it changes. Uh, you know, there there are things that are happening now, Gail, that weren't happening. If I wrote the book now, there'd be new things in it. Right? Fundraising is a fundraising is a very changing. Uh, what's the word for it? Art and science. There are things about this book I found when I was reading it, that were really essential. In your introduction to the book, you talked about raising money for nature being a vocation for you and being a calling. So tell me tell me what that feels like to have that calling and that vocation. Well, I think I, and I, and I, and I actually said the book to Gail, that actually came to me in Yukon where uh, my wife and I, lived for three years uh, running a building and running a, a, the Yukon's first and only independent school, which was a, it's another story altogether. But, um, and in Yukon, uh, nature has, a, has this ability to just grab you by the throat. I knew having left, having been involved in pollution probe in the late 60s, that's why there's 51 years of raising money for nature. Um, and where and I did raise some money for pollution probe back in 1969. I knew that the the environment was an issue. I'd heard about it. That was about toxic waste. The very first one was about toxic waste in Toronto Harbor. But um, and I kind of had a vague notion that there was in trouble. But in the Yukon, it just grabs you by the throat. Uh, you don't. It takes your breath away. In fact, and um, and it became very clear to me that the planet, our fragile planet, was in huge trouble. Um, and if we didn't do something about it, uh, we were going to be the sixth extinction. That's what's going to happen. So, um, I, as I said a number of times in the book, I think I'm not a fundraiser at all. I never was a fundraiser. I was a environmentalist who just happened to have this talent 
to market things, um, an ability to sell things to people was, and it is in the old terms, Gail, it was a calling. Nature called me to get off my rear end and help her. This book is full of, uh, of great technique and ideas to raise money. I mean, even the, you know, the appendices alone are just, you know, really helpful in, in reading. So, so how much do you think fundraising is passion for the cause and how much is technique? Well, I think, you know, and, and, and it's interesting, the technique I learned from others, Gail, I, mm. I just stole, I mean, anybody <laughs> who raises money can learn how to raise money from the people who do it really well. And in the book, I mentioned some of them, George Smith is one from the UK and Ken Burnett and others. Yeah. Uh, I just stole, and Roger Craver in the US and Fraser Green in Canada, I essentially just stole what works, Stephen Thomas in Canada, Mm-hmm. I essentially just stole what works, um, and it wasn't that difficult, really. Um, it, it, uh, it, it's, I think, and I make the point in the book somewhere, I think that uh, one of the things about raising money for nature is that you do need to have a commitment to nature first. I, I think there's 11 things I say that make fundraising for nature different. One of them is you can't do this unless your heart and soul is like my daughter would say, got the boots on the ground, unless you're an environmentalist, because it's so difficult, number one. It's all, And it's also, change is so frustratingly slow, number two. I mean, ever, ever since I've started to raise money for the environment, all that's happened has got worse. And it's going to be worse tomorrow than it is today. So, and every time you go home, and the fact of the matter is that nature's going to take time to heal. And so, I think you need, in, in in raising money for nature at least, you needed to have a commitment to the cause. Yeah. Otherwise, you just wouldn't last. And I remember talking to all sorts of people about this when they hire people, because I got to be someone people would talk to about suggestions for hiring people. And I always told them if they're going to work for the environment, they have to have a fundamental yeah. love for or understanding of or that that vocation needed to be there. Otherwise, it just wouldn't work. You know that that I came up along in the ranks when I worked for a women's shelter. And so my initial commitment before I ever heard anything about fundraising was to to uh, do something about violence against women. And so I worked at that for a number of years before that. Okay, we need money. (laughs) We need more money to, to be able to do this. And so it's what the money can buy. That is the passion, as opposed to uh, the actual commitment to the to the, the technique of it. Um, yeah, no, I think mean, I mean, one of my one of my one of my favorite stories in that whole book is the story with Mrs. Bata, Sonia Bata, uh, who taught me that money follows value. It was it was a fundamental. I can't tell you, Gail, how much that changed the nature of what I thought about raising money. I mean. And I and I and now I go around and tell people they don't actually raise money. There is no such thing as a fundraiser. You create value for donors, and and it's either the value is either inspiring, relevant, interesting, or it's not. And um, it 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 just became very clear to me that uh, there there have to be ways to find to to create value for nature. Yeah, so. yeah, exactly. And you focused on, and I think for serious reasons, in that you know, eighty percent of money, uh, philanthropic money, comes from from individuals. And so you focus this book on individuals, and and so 
And and you mentioned Sonia Bada. So who 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 are the people who give to environmental causes? What are they like? Who have you met? Um, oh, God. I, I, <laughs> I met I, I met thousands of them. Uh, fortunately, because that's what you do when you raise money. You talk yeah. to people. I mean, they 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 go all the way from and actually, it's an interesting question, especially now. One of the greatest proponents of environment died last week in HRH Prince Philip, who God knows had his issues. We all know he had his issues, bless him. Yes. But he also, in my opinion, he was one of the people who put nature on the global agenda. It, he legitimized this uh, like no one had done that before at that level. And then it's actually in Canada in 1969, it was my dad who was the president of the Toronto Board of Trade. Huh very well-respected businessman, ran Gage Publishing, a very successful business, who said to his business colleagues, you know, guys, this is real. You can't, this is a real up-and-coming issue. So the donors went all the way from a prince mm-hmm. to some of Canada's business leaders, like Sonia Bata, uh, Dick Hyvie, people whose names are recognized by anybody in the business community. And then, of course, it goes down to the people who spent, to kids who send 25 cents because yeah. they forego their birthday party and send in two, two, two dollars and 50 cents or something. I mean, it literally, donors to the environment run the gamut from those who have very little money to those who have lots. And I, keep, I kept telling people, of course, how much money they have is none of our business, zero of our business. This is especially, this is especially true in legacies, by the way, because people think, think legacies, they all light up about the money. Well, it's not about the money. It's about giving people a chance to do something extremely meaningful in the last gift of their lives, right? And right. It, how much money they have is none of our business, mm-hmm. frankly. And, it's, and I think that was true of the environmental movement. And it, as you know, Gail, it's two of the bigger movement. For land to be used to be for rich people. In the 30s, people had to be rich to give away money. That's what we thought. And then in the 60s, bless us, we invented direct mail, which meant that anybody could actually write a check for $25 mm-hmm. to save a kid in Kenya, to save a prisoner in the corner of some horrible jail somewhere, mm-hmm. and to save endangered species. Yeah. So suddenly, philanthropy became democratic. And suddenly, you have databases of one million donors in the U.S. So. Yeah. All the way from, as I say, from the rich people to people who are rubbing two pennies together because they deeply believe in the cause. Yeah, and really, planned giving and legacy giving really took its hold on you, didn't it? You really, really became quite involved in that aspect of individual giving. Yeah, well, I think it's because it's the ultimate in donor-centered fundraising. It's it's a chance to give, and you, Gail, you know this. We have the, the country is and uh, the country is filled with people who've been giving to causes all their lives. Yeah, causes they deeply believe in, causes that reflect their fundamental values. Every single one of those people has a, has an opportunity, or should have an opportunity, mm-hmm. to leave a legacy gift to things they deeply care about. It's right. the ultimate in donor centered fundraising, right? Um, because these people have. God, you know, well, World Wildlife Fund, the people are giving since 19, well, since 19, about 72. Um, and they deserve, it's, they deserve a chance to have their lives live on 
in a legacy gift. So I just got carried away by it. And of course, the other thing we get carried away by it because I have always followed the money, Gail. And uh, yes, that's where the money is. The boomers <laughs> are going to die. The death rate is doubling. As my friend Richard Radcliffe says, all you need to look at the death rate to know where you should be right. spending your time fundraising. You just need to look at the death, death rate doubling. Sometimes when I talk to board when I talk to board of directors about that, the room goes quiet. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, it's good to be able to say that with a smile and a no chuckle. Oh. <laughs> well, you know, it, 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 legacy giving is about life. It's not about death. It's about it's a legacy. Living a legacy give is not about it's it's a life affirming act. It's 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 a very life affirming act. In my yeah. book, you're right. Is half the book ended up being about legacies. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, you know, fundraising has gotten to be a pretty competitive business. Do you think it, have you found it harder to raise money for the environment? Oh, than... oh, yeah. oh well, I think acquisitions become, I think acquisitions has become very, very difficult. Getting new people to become loyal donors to causes is becoming very difficult. Uh, I'm delighted that I'm not involved in it anymore. Um, as the book makes, as the books make clear, you and I were both during our fundraising in many ways in the heydays when we were able to, we could send a letter out to a bunch of strangers and they were someone to write you back. That's right. That doesn't happen anymore now. I think there's different ways to do this. So I think it's getting more difficult. I think it's I think it's being challenged in some ways because of its um, what's the word for it. I just wonder if it's, it's, it's it can be seen as elitist sometimes. I think um, so. I think um, fundraising is is changing. Um, but legacy fundraising is is a is a field for the next thirty years, which will be just burgeoning, and then who knows what's going to happen after that? Uh, yeah, I, I, I ha, now you mentioned you know I mean the growth of legacy fundraising is certainly one of the of the changes, and the fact that the 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 philanthropy marketplace, if you want to call it that, has certainly become more crowded. What are some of the other changes that you've seen in the in the last few decades? Ken Burnett said that actually this is about donors and not about causes. I can still remember sitting at World Wildlife Fund and saying to myself, what did he just say? What do you mean it's not about wildlife? It's got to be about wildlife. It can't be about something else. And Ken says, no, 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 no. It's actually about them. It's about their... It's about what they believe is important, what what they think is important, what they want to do. And I think that fundamentally changed the way we raise, the the way that people raise money fundamentally changed and put the donors in control of the situation. They're not ATM machines. They are actually living, breathing people who want to have, who want to feel, who want to develop some kind of relationship with the cause, mind you. Now, we never... The mission ends up it remains the reason we raise money is to change the world. We don't raise money to make people feel good about themselves. Right. We don't raise money to make, we don't raise money because we want people to feel loved or anything. We raise money to change the world. Mm-hmm. We have people who want to change the world with us, and so it becomes what Ken told us is the best way to do that is to talk to them as individuals rather than talk to them thinking that they really like. World Wildlife Fund or Amnesty, they're actually, they, the reflection is a reflection of their values and what they think is important. And I remember Stephen Pigeon, uh, another great British fundraiser, saying that um, uh, that you brand your issue, not your organization. 
you know, that you, that you talk about what you do, not necessarily your organization. Uh, What do you, the, 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 the phrase in the, uh, the donor love phrase is, it's not what you do. It's what they make possible. You know, when every, everybody writes a newsletter should just take a look at it. And most newsletters, Gail, nine out of 10 will be about how great their organization is and what they do and how they're saving this and how they're doing that. And what you need to do is just completely reverse it. It's like Marat Saad, remember that play, you just got to completely see the world in a different way. And you got to see that this is not about what you do, it's about what they make possible. And it just changes the nature of the way the communication goes. It makes it more interesting, more relevant. It's full of stories rather than boring. So I think that, that changed the way we do things. Yeah. What stayed the same? What's stayed the same? Is there anything? Well, one, one of the things that stays the same is the, is the blessed, uh, I guess, what's his name? Uh, Paul uh, calls it the blessed unrest. What, cha- what, sta- what stayed the same is the motivation for people to want to make the world a better place. Right. The fundamental philanthropic impulse that people have to work for the betterment of the world has not changed, has not gone away. And it's interesting. Uh, I, I get into trouble sometimes, and you can appreciate, by saying that even though churches are empty these days, that doesn't mean that nobody, that doesn't mean people don't have any souls anymore. People have still got a soul. It's just no one's talking to it. Now, it just <laughs> turns out that I think the environmental movement talks to people's souls better than most do. I think Amnesty does too. I think women's shelters do, although I think that's a really, as you know better than anybody, that's a very... That's a tough road to hoe for all sorts of reasons, uh, way harder than the environment. Um, so, uh, but I think that that has not changed. The fundamental impulse of people who have the opportunity uh, mm-hmm. at Maslow's levels of being, yep. who have the chance to do something, they will. Let's talk about COVID for a couple of minutes here. You do okay. do a little epilogue about COVID in the book. Half. It's turned the world upside down, all right. Tell me what you think. How you? How do you think charities are going to come out of this? Well, it, it, it depends. Those those that are talking to donors, and the, as you know, one of the most successful charities in the world actually is the Royal Lifeboat Association in the UK. Uh, there, there's a right. association, RNLI. They're one of the most fun. They're one of, and these guys have just made COVID sing for them because they've gone on the phone and talked to their donors and asked them how they're feeling. It's an amazing conversation that they have with thousands of people. It's not a, not a call to raise money. It's a call to check in to the people. We want to talk to you because you make us better. We want to be sure you're healthy. So yeah. donor organizations which have done that have continued to have the conversations, meaningful conversations with donors are doing well. In fact, most of the donors, most of the organizations that I know about in the environment are doing very well because they have these conversations. Right. COVID has opened those, those has opened the opportunity up for more of us to say to our donors, we really care about you. Mm-hmm. And you and I both know that if you start saying that to people, they'll give you more money. Of course. <laughs> and- <laughs> And COVID is very much related to uh, uh, the environment in a technical, oh, yeah. real the, the yeah. climate change way, isn't it? Oh no, it's a, it's a, that's a, the yeah. The, the, those are the two points I make at the end of the book. One of them is that COVID just proves 
And one of the things they said about raising fever nature, Gail, is that it happens to be the most important issue on the planet. I mean, there are lots of other things that are important in the world, but nothing is more important than saving the natural world. Because if we don't, it's over. Yeah. And COVID is a really good example of no matter how good we think we are, no matter how smart we think we are, nature can do us in if yeah. she wants to. Yeah. Um, and increasingly with fires and floods and bad weather and God knows what, Gaia is speaking back in no uncertain terms. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason I wrote, one of the reasons I wrote the book is we need more people to get into the business of raising the millions and billions of dollars it's going to take for us to restore the natural world. So, and, and mind you, there are good news signs along the way. Even Bill Gates is talking about climate these days. Right. Uh, so, you know, it took him a while, God knows, but yeah. he is talking about it. Right. And other people are starting to get the, it's starting to sink in. Are you optimistic? Oh shit! Oh, I have to be optimistic, Gail. You yeah. you don't you 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 don't you don't raise money and be a pessimist. That's a non-starter. You mm-hmm. raise money because you think you give people a chance to make the world a better place, and in doing that, you liberate their souls to do to feel better about themselves every day yeah. in a world which is confusing and hurtful and violent. Giving people a chance to make a contribution to something they deeply believe in makes them feel better. So yeah, right. we're constantly hopeful. I think we may just be in time. I mean, I said uh, we have five generations, my grandchildren's grandchildren. We have five generations to restore the natural world to a place where it can restore itself. So, right. yeah. and I'm yeah, I think I'm confident because I think we I think we finally get it now. Mind you, as you can appreciate, in 1969 when we said this, we thought we were crazy. And everybody right. thought the world was the resources were infinite, there was no problem. And until recently, some people still don't get it. Our our our, our friends at the PC party don't seem to be struggling right. with it, but uh, never mind. Yeah. Um now I I can't let you go without asking you one more question and it's really the question I think that everybody wants answered um, specifically from you and you've been in this business a long time and full disclosure I think it's clear I've known you for a long time and admired your work for an even longer time but David Love how is it that you can spend 50 years in a sector with, as anyone listening to us in the last half an hour can tell, you have pretty strong opinions on things and that everybody really loves you. <laughs> you have, <laughs> and uh, you've got 10 pages of people saying great things about your book, but also great things about you. And maintaining an equanimity in these times or through these times is a particular talent. You know, how have you, how have you managed to do that? It's really interesting. It's interesting because my daughter, uh, my, I, I turned 75 uh, a week, uh, not that long ago. And my daughter posted a lovely Facebook thing. My eldest daughter posted a lovely Facebook thing. And she said, Gail, it was, and it was very, she's a very perceptive woman. She said, Dad le- leans into joy. I look 
I do not spend my life looking for things that drain my energy. I do not spend one minute doing that. I spend every minute of my life trying to find things that her phrase was leaning. He leans into joy. And that's true. Um, uh-huh. Another way she puts it, Gail, is even, I think it's even better. People either suck or blow. It's simple. <laughs> that's, that's, the, that's the answer to the, your listeners now know the answer to the universe. People either suck or blow. <laughs> the trick is figuring out, number one, which, to, which the person you're talking to, which are they doing right now? And number two, if they're sucking, there better be a reason for it other than just sucking you dry. So um, I think it's been keeping the equanimity and keeping, uh, it's just my fundamental glass half full um, or three quarters full view of things because I just didn't, I didn't think there was much benefit to thinking the other way. Right. Well, you know, David, it, it, it's been real pleasure, you know, leaning into joy with you for the last half an hour. And I mean that from my heart. And I wish you all the best with Green Green. I know people are going to find it funny, interesting. There's some cool facts about your uh, lineage that people may not know that um, links into uh, uh, weaves into Canadian history and some great fundraising tips, whether you're fundraising for the environment or for women's causes. There's some really good uh, work in your book. Well, thank you again. It was a, as I said, it was, a, it was a pleasure to finally write it all down at your, at your, at your, with your encouragement. Uh, I, finally, I finally had the brain to, to take the time to write it down. So I enjoyed, enjoyed doing that. Well, that's great. Thanks a lot for being with Talking Up. It's my pleasure, Gail. Thanks, thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Talking Up. The program was produced by Terry Carter. Mark Goldberg composed and recorded the original music. Be sure to join us again next week for another inspiring edition. And if you're interested in keeping up to date until then, visit us at thecharityreport.com.